This episode of Film Scene is supported by Globe Screen Group, an international events company operating conference and festivals in the U.S. and Europe. If you have a new film, 20 minutes or less, submit it to Globe Screen's latest film festival, taking place in Paris in December. A call for entries is open through November 6th. Go to filmfreeway.com slash France Screen Shorts Festival. Jury members are Caroline Benjo, producer of The Young Pope on HBO. Charlotte Mickey, VP at Paris-based sales company Celluloid Dreams. And Thierry Chazet, editor of Premiere, France's leading film magazine. Our guest today is a filmmaker from L.A. who turned a fascinating story into the subject of an upcoming documentary called Red Dog and Bates, which we spoke at length about in the first portion of the cast. Although it's her directorial debut, she's had an amazing and vast career working primarily as a first AD on many major motion pictures and TV shows such as Terminator 2, Alien 3, Primal Fear, TV shows like The X-Files, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And obviously a lot of productions have been on hiatus for a while because of the quarantine and Things are starting to resume again, including the show she's working on, which is called Animal Kingdom, which I haven't watched yet, but I've heard good things about. Aside from her super impressive IMDb resume of working with directors like James Cameron and Walter Hill and David Fincher, she's just an all-around awesome person. I really enjoyed our talk. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce Sochi Blymeyer to the Film Scene Podcast. Welcome to the Film Scene Podcast. It's good to see your face, Sochi. Thank you. You too. What's life been like for you under the quarantine? Uh, well, life has been very quiet. I live by myself, so I've kind of uh, gotten into a routine of hanging out with myself. Uh, the first part of it. I got to work on uh, my friend who is editing my documentary was here. Uh, actually, he's just recently returned a few days ago, but he lives in Mexico. So he arrived for the first time in California in Hollywood as a movie maker on March 13th. And that was the day we got shut down. Wow. First visit to Hollywood was seeing the inside of my house for the first five weeks <laughs> and uh but it got us to start i got him to agree to start editing my movie and um that was a good thing so we had the first five weeks we're actually working in my house working on my documentary and so and that and that's your documentary red dog and baits is that correct yes yes exactly and uh tell us a little bit about your documentary well it's a story a story that I found out many years ago um, when I met this gentleman who was a photographer, older, older man, and he introduced himself as the guy that walked with my dad to Mexico, which wow. I was, man, he was like, wait, what guy, what walk? Um, my dad's name was Bill Bates, and he and my mom got divorced when I was five. So I never really hung around with him long enough to learn any stories about him. You know, when you're from divorced parents, you kind of, you go visit dad and they say, how are you? What's happening? And then you go home. So 
it honestly never came up. So this and my dad had died in 2011. Um, so it was shortly after he died, the other man, um, his house burnt down in Hollywood Hills. Wow. And one of the only things that survived the fire, the whole house burnt down, but the only thing that survived the fire was this cabinet in his garage that when he pried it open, realized it was all his photos and paperwork from this trip that he had made in 1958-59, walking from Los Angeles to Mexico City. That's quite so, a walk. Yes, it was quite a walk. And he um, realized, since it was the only thing he had left, that he should reach out and try to find Bill Bates. When he discovered that Bill Bates had literally just died a few weeks after the fire, he found my stepbrother, who was in the obituary, and asked if he could meet him. My brother called me, said, do you want to meet the guy that walked with dad to Mexico? I was like, what guy? And yes, 100%. So we met him. He brings us this photo album of all these amazing photos of he and, he and Bates. He had, he had brought a rolly cord camera, which is the little rectangular camera that flips up at the top and you can look down at the lens through the camera at the top. And he brought a tripod and a timer. So he took some of the original selfies. He would set up the camera and he would run to his spot in the photo and he'd take pictures of the two of them all through the desert and the jungle and you know wherever they were. But he also took amazing pictures of the Mexican people and the Mexican places that they went to. So the, the pictures that were left, there were many pictures that were burnt. I know there were so many amazing things that I'll never get to see because they're gone, but we ended up seeing all of these amazing pictures. I got to know him over the next couple of years. And then I asked him if I could make his, the documentary about this story. And he agreed. We started out by interviewing him as much as he could remember about the stories and their walk. He gave me access to all of his photos. Uh, the year we started filming, he got sick. So the next, the next year he died and I was still determined to, you know, finish the movie because it's such a great story. And the story is 1958, these two guys, they didn't know each other. Red Dog, who's also Bill Tynan, he's also a Bill. Red Dog decided he had this great job at Disney Studios. He saw all his friends buying houses, getting married, living in the San Fernando Valley here in California and said, that's not what I want to do. So he came up with this plan that this one man journey to walk from Los Angeles to Mexico City to kind of set his mark in the world. And when Bill Bates across town found out about this guy that was gonna make the walk through other friends, he called him until Red Dog agreed to let him go with him. So the two of them didn't really know that Red Dog said, all right, if you have $200, that's good because I have $200 and I think with the $400 we can get from Los Angeles to Mexico City. No problem. Bill Bates says, yep, I got it. So 
They go down to the local Army Navy store that's still in existence here on Fairfax in Hollywood, and they buy just a ton of things that they didn't need because they weren't campers or hikers. They were just two young guys that wanted an adventure. My dad was um, separated from my mom, had my oldest sister, who was one at the time. So he wasn't particularly happy, wanted to do something different and figure out his life. And Red Dog, same thing. He quit his job at Disney because he didn't want to have just a regular nine to five job. And the two of them, off they went. Did I say they were 25? They're 28. But still young guys. So, nevertheless. Yeah. Still young. So October uh, 1958, with these huge 70-pound packs, they head out. They decide that they're going to start on the border of Los Angeles County because Red Dog had gotten arrested a couple of times for walking on the highway in Los Angeles. So he decided to prevent any more tickets, they would start on the county line. So they had friends, dropped them off, off they went, and they made four miles their first day. And they were exhausted. Just four miles? Four, out. four miles? Yeah. <laughs> Just four miles. And it's very <laughs> funny because um, they both had journals. So they both wrote in their journals every day what they saw, how many miles they went, what they ate, who they met, which was for me, when I decided to do this, this was the treasure map that when I was able to go down to Mexico and travel, myself and three others, I found uh, three Mexicans. One was a producer, one was uh, a cameraman who is now editing my movie and the third was like an all around just helped like a production coordinator type of a person. Now, now, so, uh, before you go on, were both those journals intact? Like, did you have access to both journals? They were pretty much intact. Wow. There that's are, amazing. there are it's a few pieces missing. Um, but for the most part we could, from what he told us in the interviews before he died and then with the journals, um, we could literally follow their path because they would write what town they went to, what town they walked through. And with these three other um, filmmakers, I flew down to Mexico. I had never met them before. I saw them on like a FaceTime or a, you know, that kind of thing. I met them in the middle of Sonora, which is the top state of Mexico with my camera equipment and sound and all that. And we, basically jumped into a van for the next 30 days, drove up, drove up to the, um, you want me to get my phone? Sure. If you need a minute. Yeah. It is a fascinating story, by the way, especially <laughs> about the both journals. That's something that particularly interests me too, because you're getting, you're literally getting two different perspectives of the same events. That's 100% true because they said when they started walking, they were walking kind of on the same side of the road, like you would in a normal walk down the street. And Bill Bates walked methodically the same pace all the time. Red Dog was the more excitable one. Like if he saw something that he liked, he would hurry and they'd bump into Bates or, you know, he'd slow down to take a picture. At, so somehow they made the decision that they would walk on opposite sides of the road. And then at the end of the day, they could compare notes and they always saw different things. 
Yeah. And when you read their two journals, Bates is a lot more detailed than Red Dog, but um, but so at first I only had Red Dog's journal when I first started because gotcha. Bates, the other side of the family, had the journal. And your father's journal. It's a whole story there. Um, right. Anyways, um, gotcha. finally I I got it, but I it was a couple weeks into the Mexico trip, so um, but when we got a hold of Bates's journal and put the two together. It was like, we were finding more and more people and places and things. So we started at the top of Sonora, which is the Grand Desierto, where they walked 125 miles through the desert, thinking this is gonna be the hardest part of our journey. They didn't bring enough food. They misunderstood when someone said there's gonna be a fruit stand, which was a fruit inspection stand. Um, so they, they had already walked a ways and said, well, you know, we're just gonna keep going. And it was hot in the day and cold at night. And they were, you know, they weren't, they weren't normal travelers or hikers, but they just were determined to do it. Yeah. They, they got through the desert, <clears throat> very happy with themselves. Um, you know, they're, this point, uh, Red Dog needed a new pair of shoes because one of his soles had worn out. They had spent most of their money in U.S. Like everything was expensive in the U.S. Right. Nobody was giving them things. People were calling them bums, um, saying, why are you two men out here walking when you could be, you know, home working? And, and they were also wearing, they decided at the Army-Navy store that they would both wear these um, green Army pants and shirts. Right, the kind of things that you would oh. buy at an Army Navy store. Yeah. So, but they decided that was their outfit. They each brought yeah. two sets. They had a hat and boots, and they were all set. So, like I said, in California and Arizona, people are like, "You're bums. Get away. We're not giving you anything." They said the minute they crossed the border, all of that changed. The Mexicans had the whole different attitude about travelers. If you were a traveler in Mexico they would ask, how can we help you? And these were people, the poorest of the poor, and sometimes the rich were, were offering them, you know, you can sleep on our porch, or let me serve you some beans and tortillas, or, you know, if they had an extra peso, they would, they would give it to them because they were concerned and they wanted the travelers to be able to make it to their destination. It wasn't even a question of how, you know, helping or not helping. So, um, do you want me to continue? Yeah, this is, this is amazing. Uh, and it's amazing okay. that they were met with that level of hospitality um, as yes. soon as they crossed the border, which, is, which I find really pretty cool. Yes. And thing is, neither of them spoke Spanish. They were learning little by little as they went into Mexico, but they were approached with things like these. They came up to this house. They were very hungry. There were these four like cowboys that looked menacing. They said they were four brothers and they asked if they had any food. And one of the guys said, como no. So they turned and like ran away. And one of the guys grabbed them and dragged them into the house. Well, como no means what, of course. Oh, okay. So, this is how little Spanish they knew. 
Yeah. And the guys sat them down and they talked as much as they could and they were served lots of food. So that's kind of what would happen. And um, as they, after they got through the desert, this was one of the first places they ended up with, with those four brothers, but they walked through a town and it was the end of the day and some policemen picked them up to take them to jail which they were like, okay, great. We're already being thrown in jail. Turns out that back in those days, if you were a traveler and you needed a place to stay, you could go to the local jail and they would give you a place to sleep for the night. Wow. So that policeman was just, was just watching out for them. They did yeah. say they served, they served them some gnarly food that had <laughs> flies and they were kind of forced to eat it because yeah. they were being offered food. Yeah. But in reality, it was just yet another another case of, hey, we want to make sure you're fed and we want to give you a place to stay. And I don't, they don't, they didn't stay at that first jail, but they did find out why they were being taken to jail that, gotcha. that time. Um, but it was early on, it was early in their travels and they weren't quite ready to trust that it was true. But later, as they journeyed south, they realized if they couldn't find a place to stay or if it was bad weather, they would either go to the local jail or they would go to um, like the local city council building. And you'd, they'd see other people there sleeping. Like it was, it was a, a, a thing for people that just didn't have a place to go. And they'd spend the night and they'd, you know, keep on their journey. That's so cool. Yeah. My goal when I went to follow their path was to try to find people and the places and match the pictures that I had to locations. And, and we did. It was a, at the time that we filmed, it was 58 years had passed. And we found either family of people that might have died since since they had written about them um we found people that actually were the people that they met and that take care of them they remembered them oh when we we would what we would do would drive into a town we'd go to the town plaza because every town in mexico or at least 99 percent of the towns in mexico have a plaza and we'd ask someone um can you point us towards your oldest, oldest person in town? And my producer, Jimena, she'd be the one that would get out of the car. She'd go talk to the people. We'd see her, you know, go from door to door as she's being told who to go talk to. And she'd come, if she was successful, she'd come out in the street and she'd wave her hand, kind of like a queen wave, which meant I got something. And we'd get out with our cameras and we'd go off and we, we would, you know, this is who we'd find. We found like someone's daughter, but the people, if the people had truly crossed paths with them, you knew it immediately because they looked at the photo and the joy on their face was amazing. And you knew you get because the people that didn't know, they would go, oh, I'm not sure. We had a lot of travelers come through town. Maybe, maybe not. You knew. Uh, there was a, 
there were two different people, men that were just teenagers when they walked through. And there was no question. One guy was in a town called Los Muertos. He said, our town had nothing. And here comes these two guys with beards in green Garmy outfits with big backpacks walking through our town. No Americans would do that. Or we had never seen that before. He goes, I remember it. He goes, they didn't even stay, but I remember it so clearly as a, I think he was a, the 14 year old that he saw something that, you know, stuck in his memory for 60 years. Um, and then we found other people that were just, Oh, thank you for coming. And since I was the daughter, then we would say, oh, and this is Bill Bates's daughter. And then it was even more special that, you know, Bates's daughter had come to, to get to know these people. Yeah, and the, some it, of the, it makes even more of a connection. Like there's, yes, you know. I mean, it was, since I didn't speak great Spanish, I didn't always understand everything they were saying but I would watch the faces of my three people. And for instance, one gentleman, his mom had been gone for a while. We found this gentleman his, in, the, in the journal. His, it says his mom, who's named Margarita, had a cafe and she, anybody, any traveler that came through to her cafe, she would feed them for free. And her husband was always mad at her. Why are you giving people food for free? And she would say, like I told you, because they're travelers and they don't have money and they, they, we need to feed them. So we found this gentleman who is a lawyer in uh, Navajoa. He said, yep, yeah, that's my mom. And we showed him the journals and we, he showed us pictures of her. And we had a great interview with him. But at the very end, I, I, would, I would say to the people, especially if it was their, you know, family members that aren't around, I said, you know, just tell them thank you from me. I want to thank them for Red Dog and Bates for taking such good care of them as they traveled through Mexico. And he said to us, you know what, just you being here is thanks enough and to have you remember my mom to come here all these years later and remember my mom and the kindness that she gave to them is basically more than, more than thanks enough. That's amazing. And that, yeah. And that's sort of the sentiment from anybody that we met that either had family members or were the people, whenever I said, thank you, they were just amazed that we would remember them. So a lot of these places there's one town we drove through a small town and they told us where we needed to go to find this family we drove down like 10 miles of gravel dirt roads and suddenly there's this little tiny town sure enough the family is still right there they were like the only people that we saw in town the gentleman that was mostly written about in the journal had died but there were like 10 family members that were all greeted us, had us come on in and hang out with them. And they talked about us. And 
about us, how amazing that we traveled all this way just to just to say hi, you know, and film. I mean, every it was the most amazing thing ever to meet all these people. Yeah, that's quite a journey, and that's that's quite a an amazing thing that you retraced their steps and met these people that you know they had met or their family members or you know that's that's it's that's really interesting so so yeah is, is the documentary coming out soon is there any specific plans of uh a release or that's a very good question so the filming is done there's only a couple things that i would like to film once i see a cut of the movie um, I've just had a little bit of challenges with editors and it's, well, it's tough editing a documentary cause there's so many ways it could go on like a narrative film. Then there's so much footage and right. I've been funding it myself. So I don't have a whole lot of extra money to just like give it to a full editing company, a post company to, to do anything fancy. So up until I get a rough cut, I've been depending on, an independent editor to help me and I don't know how to edit. So I probably could have learned during the quarantine. Um, anyways, when Timo, who was the cameraman came back or came to California in March, he hadn't realized it had been four years since I traveled to Mexico with them. He hadn't realized that I had been having trouble finding an editor. He thought I had lived in Hollywood so, of course, there should be an endless amount of people that want to spend their time working on my movie, which isn't really the case. Right, um, right, of course. Everybody's got their as own As you know, <laughs> you, you have your own projects. Everybody has their own projects. Yeah. And, but, and honestly, people want to get paid. If you're, if you're good at your job, right. you deserve to get paid. Um, I just didn't have those kind of funds. So I have been looking for someone that was good but could work in my budget. So Timo was here and I asked, you know, he was realized we had watched the cut from the previous editor and he, he said, you know, it's good, but if you would like me to, I feel like I could make it better. And I said, absolutely, please. And the thing is, he was on the trip to Mexico. He was there for almost everything that we shot in Mexico. He speaks Spanish. He has listened to the interviews of the Mexican people and is finding these little gems in there that these people have said that I just getting a translation from some other company. That's not what come at, came out in the translation. Yeah, he's well, finding work. It sounds like he's finding the nuance, like... Uh, exactly you. you were correct and he would come he you know i had he was i gave him my office and i'm in here and he would come running in saying sochi you'll never believe what i found you never believe what this person said and he was always just like and i was like that's amazing like that is not in our cut that we have so he basically starting from the beginning again he did have to go back to Mexico and he's just returned and he didn't really have access to the proper equipment down there to keep going. So the goal is he's back again for a couple months to get a rough cut. Now we're getting prices on post-production and now I'm going to try to raise money for the post-production 
the final the final post production. You know, all the right, right. color timing and music and all that. Sound design um, and all that. Yeah. Yeah, and the goal would be, you know, by the end of the year or beginning of next year, to actually have a movie that I'm proud of. So from the first minute I was told the story by Red Dog at the diner when I first met him, my brother, who's a prop master, we looked at each other and said, this would make an amazing feature film, like a really amazing buddy film, period piece, walking through Mexico. So, you know, that would be my goal is to finish the documentary, get it out there to be seen, and maybe the next step would be to find someone who could write the feature version of it. Cool. Yeah, it yeah. does sound like a really intriguing story. I mean, I could picture it. It's also a very visual story, too. You know, yeah. even with their down and, to their green outfits. Yes, I mean, and there was there was drama. Although I've told you about how kind everybody was in their own story. You know, imagine not being friends. The two of you are suddenly with each other 24 hours a day. Bates turns out did not have $200. He just said that so that he could go on the journey. So they run out of red. For some reason they use red dog's money first. And then when red dog goes, okay, now it's time to use your money. Bates was like, well, I don't actually have that money. What money? <laughs> yeah. What money? Yeah. So, they they wrote about how um, people would send them, you know, either a friend or the Disney people. They did a they sent a very funny cartoon because Bates was a cartoonist. Also, they sent this great cartoon about the Bean Fund and sent it to Disney. And as Red Dog sent the photos back to his friends at Disney, they realized that this was actually a cooler trip than they thought it was going to be. The people that were still at home. Yeah. So they put a map, they put a map of Mexico up, they tracked them, they saw all their photos. Bates and Red Dog sent the bean fund request. So they got a little collection of money, you know, dollars, five dollars. And then throughout the journey, they would write home and or to their friends, and friends would send a dollar or five dollars. So at one point, Bates had an extra five in his wallet that Red Dog saw. Red Dog thought that he had been holding out on him. So he decides he's going to split up with him. And he, he's, he, it was very funny because in the journal and his stories, he, he was like, he was dragging me down anyways. I'll do much better on my own. So he left him a note. So, so Bates wrote that or Red Dog wrote that? Well, Red Dog left Bates a note that said, that's it. I'm out of here. He left, and then, and then and then Bates, Bates wrote in his journal that he was dragging me down and that kind of thing. Oh no, the other way around. Oh, okay, gotcha. Bates Bates was the one, the most solid. He walked at the same pace. He didn't. This is my dad. He didn't yeah. talk much. You know, if his feet hurt, Bates uh, Red Dog said, "Yeah, I'd realize at the end of the day, I'm complaining about my feet, and I'm asking." Bates, because he doesn't complain, do your feet hurt? And Bates takes off his shoes and they're all blistered. And it was kind of like, yeah, they're kind of blistered, you know. He was <laughs> yeah. more, he was, more like, well, there's, more nothing to be yeah. Yeah. there's nothing to be done about it, so why complain? Um, and he was more pragmatic, it sounded like. 
except for the fact yeah. that um, he told the tall tale about the money. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, oh, so not only do I have their journals, but all of the letters that Red Dog wrote home to his fam, to his mom, to his friends at home, he's all those people gave him his letters back as part of because his goal when he returned from Mexico was to maybe write a book or go on tour, something like that. And he did um, talk to a writer about his story. So he had all the information that he kept with him so that he would be able to refer back to his letters and things like that. So he actually also had a letter that Bates wrote to him apologizing for whatever he had misunderstood. So I have that letter as well. That's so um, cool. So that's, that's how I knew more about it. Although Bait, uh, Red Dog told us in his interviews a little bit about their relationship. I didn't get to ever hear him say the full scope of their relationship, like from the beginning to the middle to the end, because he got sick. But um, we've pieced it together with the letters and journals. And yeah, so they split up. And he, Red Dog, assumed that Bates would just turn around and go home, but he didn't. So two days later, they bump into each other. They hug it out. And we're like, well, I guess we're both going. We might as well go together. So they made up. And they said it was better from then on because, you, know, you know, like any, like any good, they weren't, they still never were friends, but any good relationship, you know, you have that final straw that breaks the camel's back. And then they ended up obviously making it to Mexico City. So they make it to Mexico City in May of 1959. They get to um, the really funny, funny line that Red Dog said. So we go to the newspaper office. I look up the staircase and there's a newsman coming down on his way to lunch. And he looks at the two of us and says, where are you guys from? And Red Dog says, Los Angeles. And the guy says, What'd you do? Walk? And Red Dog says, every goddamn step of the way. <laughs> Cut to like the next day on the newsstand is their picture and their story. And then the next week, the LA Times, same thing. They had put an article in the LA Times when they were leaving, two men on their way to Mexico City. And now the new LA Times headlines is that the two guys made it. And that's that so was, cool. Yeah. So then they ended up staying there for a few weeks. They came, they walked and hitchhiked on their way back. When they got to Arizona, the border, they caught a bus, took it to Los Angeles, got off the bus, shook hands, hugged each other, and said, see you later. And they never saw each other again. Wow. Yep. It was the days, there was no, then neither of them had, like Red Dog was coming back from having quit his job and he didn't have a place to stay and Bates wasn't with my my mom and sister at the time. He eventually did get back together, obviously, or I wouldn't be here. Um, uh, and it's, it's not like there was a Facebook or anything like that at the time. So That's exactly right. I mean, it, it was interesting. That's why when you ask the question about the friends, it's like, they made this 
unforgettable journey together yet and they both of them on their own sides it's like one of the best times of their life except neither of them made that much of an effort to find each other like life just got in the way and they might have on either side tried at some point but i think on red dog's part he was more the one that not that he didn't want to be found but he didn't it wasn't really that big of a deal for him or wasn't really concerned with it because he had so many other things he was doing. Bates, on the other hand, looked for him now and then, but just didn't couldn't find him. And the only reason Red Dog found him or even looked for him was his house burnt down. And he, you know, it had been 50 years later. He's like, oh, maybe I should look for Bates. And then it was too late. Bates wow. was gone. Yeah. Yeah. So... Was he, was he happy to at least have connected with you? Like, you know, like, yeah. like did that kind of fulfill that, you know, need to connect with that part of yeah. his life a bit? And it turned out that before my mom met Bates, she had gone on a date with Red Dog because they went to the same high school. No way. And my aunt had then also dated him like for a while wow red dog got around huh red dog got around but yeah that wasn't but then bill bates somehow came into the picture later red dog wasn't anywhere part of that yeah it was very i guess la was smaller back then <laughs> culver city was hopping and people were dating i don't know yeah <laughs> I, know it's, I know it's a podcast so no one else can see this but I wanted to show you, like, here's one of his oh, pictures. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And these are the, the burnt, this is what was found in his, in his attic, you know, I mean, in his cabinet. Some of these, of course, every time I do this, I get burnt pieces all over, but. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. It's pretty cool. They must be printed on some like really heavy duty. Yeah, he had them sent. So he did end up having an art show after the house burnt down. For the first time, he got to display his his photos. Gotcha. Three okay. different times. So I see like the, okay. those are the yep. burn marks, huh? Yeah. Wow. But he, he made copies of these and um, got them into an art show had all of his art at age 85 got or 83 got to show his art finally that's pretty remarkable so keep working because you know that's what i'm gonna do eventually no honestly that's inspiring because sometimes i feel like you know and I know I'm not unique this way. I always feel like, oh, I should have, I should be more accomplished by my age or, you know, I feel like, and I had uh, a friend of mine who's, she's, she's like super accomplished and like this Emmy award winning TV producer. And we were sitting in the backyard and I was saying that she was like, I feel the same way. She was like, everybody that is a go-getter feels that way. And I'm like, okay, well that makes me feel a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've been in the business for a long time, but because I chose the path of, you know, the management, being an assistant director, 
and people don't really see me as a as the creative side, the director, producer, that kind of thing. So the whole point of doing this movie, little did I know how challenging it would be and how much time it would take to get the actual final movie together. I wanted to when I when I met Red Dog and he told me his story, it got me thinking that this could be something that I could make to kind of present my myself as a creative person. Yeah. Granted, I started this, you know, five years ago. So <laughs> well, it takes I might time. be 80 when I finally finish it. But um, but you know, I was just like, how how do I have someone give me a chance to do something different than just be an assistant director. I'm good at being an assistant director, but you know, I wouldn't mind doing something more. So I thought that this would be a way in. I just chose a documentary that took way more time than I thought. Well, it's a totally remarkable story. So I can't wait to watch it. Yeah. And once it comes out, we'd, you know, we'd love to have you back on or, you know, give it a shout out, help you promote it. Cool. So I, I want to talk a little bit about um, some, some of your other work as well. And I guess you mentioned you grew up in Hollywood, right? Or you grew up in L.A., yeah. rather? I, I grew up in, yep, in L.A. and both of my parents were in the business. And I think I saw on your on your bio that it said your mom it's like a hairstylist for the movies. Is that right? Yeah. So my mom was um, a hairdresser and she was Natalie Wood's hairdresser for 17 years and did primarily features. And then my dad was a gaffer and he did features as well. And when I say my dad, when Bill Bates was my biological dad and then my mom shortly after they divorced met Pat Blymeyer so when I talk about my dad, I'm usually talking about Pat because he's the one that yeah. I grew up with. He's the one that Bill raised Bates you. Will always, yeah. So, I mean, Bill Bates ended up being a prop master and he and my stepmother ended up being a prop team and they did mostly TV. Wow. So both, so, yeah, like you, ha you have so much family that was in the business. Yeah. So, yeah. So I grew up on movie sets and, um, traveling around, traveling around the world with my parents, depending on what, who was on what movie. So that must've been an interesting upbringing. And did you, did, did you have an idea at that time that you would end up in the business? I, I did know that I wanted to be in the movie business because it was the, I grew up in it. I knew how much fun it was. I didn't know what job I was going to have or what job you know, I'd be good at. Um, but then in, when I was 15, my parents decided that they had had enough of the movie business and they decided, well, twice, twice, if you want to know this story, twice. You Absolutely. Um, the first time they decided to get out of the business was in 1968. They did my dad had been from West Virginia, Pat, and they decided to buy a farm in West Virginia. And we went there to become farmers. So off we went for, it wasn't, it was only for a few years, but we bought this, we, I didn't buy it. I was, 
I know what you mean though. <laughs> Six, yeah. So my family moved to this farm on the top of the hill above a coal camp in a town called Amigo, West Virginia. My dad became a bus driver and my mom kind of ran the farm. We had one cow, some sheep, one horse, a uh, few pigs until one time we took them to the um, slaughterhouse and my mom was in tears because she saw the other pigs that had been slaughtered. So that didn't go over very well. Like we weren't yeah. meant to um, take our pets because of course you name, you're not supposed to name your animals if you're going to slaughter them. Never do that. Yeah, that makes it, sense. Yeah, very sad later. Anyways, we're so we're on the farm. We ended up because they thought it'd be a great place for underprivileged kids to come. We, the the state says no, you can't have kids there as like a summer camp. But we we do have a lot of foster kids that need a home. So we ended up. I ended up with nine foster brothers and sisters for a. Wow. Short period, short period of time. So here I am as a kid up on the farm in my overalls with all these other children. It's almost like the Waltons. Yeah. And, and then a few years go by and they ran out of money. And they're like, all right, I guess we better go back to Hollywood and earn some money. So we moved back. They got back into the business, you know, did a lot of features. And then in 1978, they decided again okay, we're done. And this time they bought a country inn in New Hampshire, the Snow Village Inn, and ended up running the inn for 10 years. So I moved back there in the middle of high school and we ran the inn. They kept it for 10 years and they had built a house across the street. They sold it after 10 years. And when I was back, this is a long version of how I ended up in the movie business. I thought, well, now what do I do? Because a lot of people in the movie business grew up here. So that's how you get in. So I ended up going to college at University of New Hampshire. I was a math major for some reason. Um, that's interesting. And so you're, you're great at math. <laughs> I used to be. I don't think my brain is cut out for it anymore. Maybe if I, maybe if I studied. Yeah. The, the, um, I ended up getting a job at the Better Business Bureau of Boston for two years, like an actual... 8.30 to 4.30 a day job right in the subway after two years. I was like, okay, I do want to be in the movie business. So I got in my Volkswagen Rabbit and headed west. When I got here, my sister lived here still, lived with her for a while. My dad ended up coming back really once they bought the inn. My mom pretty much retired. She did a couple other shows, but my dad would go and do a movie. And that's kind of how they kept the inn running with that extra money. Because if you ever buy an inn, you will not make money. But yeah, it's true. a nice place. Definitely a nice place to live. Yeah. The, um, so my dad came out here to work. So I went and worked with him on a couple of his movies as a stand-in. He introduced me to a producer who got me a job as a production assistant on a movie called Red Heat with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jim Belushi. And that first AD hired me to help him schedule because I actually had computer skills at that point. And it was when computerized schedules were just becoming a thing and computers were just becoming a thing. Yeah. So I did all his inputting into the computer. So even as a first time production assistant on a set 
I knew the schedule. Gotcha. I knew, yeah. So it was like a natural sort of segue to get involved in being like a, yeah. an AD, essentially. Ex- exactly. And like my mom went to hairdressing school for hair. My dad just had an eye for lighting. I didn't necessarily have any of those skills that I knew of. So when I got the job as the production assistant, it just kind of continued. And then I got into the Directors Guild in 1991. And the rest is history. 1991 was Terminator 2, which was my first uh, movie as an assistant director. That's quite a first movie to be in a, a yeah. for, an assistant and director. I, and I started yeah. the movie as a production assistant. And then over the holiday, they changed things up. And that producer said, what, it, what will it take for you to get into the DGA? I said, I just need someone to, I've already turned in all my paperwork that they need. I just need someone to call and say they want to hire me. So he did that for me. He wow. DGA to kind of fast track going through my paperwork in January 2nd, 1991. I became an assistant director. That's pretty cool. That must have been an exciting yeah. moment for sure. It was. Yeah. And I, I mean, for people that are in the industry, like a lot of the people that are listening to this podcast are filmmakers, but for those that, and obviously filmmakers know the importance of, how important an AD is to just running a set in general and just everything, you know, going according to plan. Um, But for people that might be fans of cinema that are listening to this podcast, but don't quite understand how things work behind the camera and they're just not familiar with what a first AD does. Maybe, maybe you could shed some light uh, about just describing what an, an assistant director does. Sure. So, well, there's what I'm doing now. Is that what you'd like to know? So in, sure. as an AD, there's three different ADs on a, on a normal set. If you were watching the credits, you would see first assistant director, you would see second assistant director, and then further down the credits, you'd see second, second assistant director. Which is hysterical, by the way, because I yeah. always wondered how that term second, second ad instead like why didn't they just i don't know someone just said i'm not ever going to be a third now if you watch a movie (laughs) if you watch a movie and you see third assistant director then you know that movie used was either was either in canada or in europe because that's where they that's where it is first second and third here it's first second 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 why i do not know and they also have additional second which is below second second so nobody's ever not a second or a first. Um, as the second second, which is what I started in, well, okay, so as a first, your job is to come up with a schedule in while you're prep. So you have two stages of setting up the movie. You have prep, which is when everybody's figuring out what we're actually, you know, you get the script, and then everybody in the crew that's a department different department breaks down their script for their department. For me, I break down a script, meaning I read what the scene is, where the scene is going to be, who's in the scene, what props they might be using, what they're, you know, if it describes what they're wearing, if they're beat up, that they need special makeup, 
if there's a dog, you know, if there's a vehicle, all of this stuff is put into a scheduling program that I do for every scene. So I take the script and that's how I break it down, put all the elements that I see listed in the script and put it in a schedule. After that, we start having meetings about concept meeting. The director and the producer get to tell all the departments, what, what do you want this movie to be about? You know, what's this scene mean? You know, and it helps all the different departments determine how to continue prepping for the items and or sets or things that they they need to prep for according to what the director and the producers want. For me, I just basically keep taking notes and adjusting my schedule to how other people are interpreting what we need. We're also going on location scouts. If there's a bar that they need and they pick a special bar, that bar is only available on such and such a Wednesday. I know that in my schedule, I have to take that day working in the bar and put it on that particular day. It's just a big puzzle. As I get information, whether it's a cast member that isn't available except for the last two weeks of the movie, well, then I know any work that has that cast member has to be the last two weeks of the movie. If that cast member was in the bar that was the favorite location, but the bar is not available then, then they need to decide whether do what's more important, the bar or the cast, and then they have to change. So my job throughout prep is ever changing the schedule according to what elements we have or don't have. And in TV, it's every seven or eight days, you're putting together a whole schedule with all these elements. It may be a set that they need to build, so that set has to be at the end of the schedule, but maybe an actor's not available at the end, so it's one day before the end. So it's really, it really is, if you're good at puzzles, you'd be great as an assistant director scheduling. And not, and you can't get, you can't get upset about it because you should know that it, you know, show business, it's always changing. Right. It's only set in stone until it's not. And that's pretty much every day, all day long. <laughs> it sound, um, that sounds like that, solid advice. Yeah. And then um, you can hey. always recommend. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. I was just going to, uh, please go on. You could always I recommend. say there are certain things because we are the closest to the schedule. If someone comes up with a great idea, whether it's sometimes they might schedule for an actor, they may say, you know, I'd really like to do this scene before that scene because this helps the actor understand what it is that motivates them for the next scene. I might say, well, here's the thing. The second scene is actually a day scene and the first scene is a night scene. They're both at the same location. Ideally, we would do day work before we do night work. Can you consider maybe talking to the actor and talk him through what he might be going through? Or we can rehearse both scenes, but shoot the day one first. And you kind of have to, I don't know that it's a negotiation. It's more of an explanation because I'm the logistics person and the right. director is the creative person and we're both have to meet in the middle as to what 
makes the schedule work the best and most efficient to shoot. Now, do you find that certain directors that you work with just naturally have a better sense of the logistics than other directors? <laughs> uh, yes, 100%. Yeah. Because um, I, I feel like, as, um, I, don't know, I mean, I'm a director and I feel like I, maybe because I started, you know, and I still, I'm very much an independent film filmmaker. So you, I feel like as an indie filmmaker, you have to have a sense of that. You can't literally you afford not to. It will exactly. But there still might be things that you feel are important for your storytelling to do in a certain order. Right. And that's when someone like me has to understand that and try to first off, either try to get you to understand why we may need to change the schedule or the other part of that is me going back to the schedule and really looking at it again, just to see if we can work it out. Cause sometimes you can, sometimes it's something that you didn't see because you're focused on like the day night of it or cause you might say, no, I really need to keep them together. But how about the night scene is evening and we just, you know, keep it low light for both scenes and that way we can keep them in order. Like if it doesn't hurt the story or, or anything like that, like, things that yeah. you wouldn't that means changing the script which sometimes is fine on the show i'm doing now because of the quarantine i mean sorry not the quarantine we're back in action um because of covid19 we are not we the the writers made a covid19 pass things that they had put inside a living room are now out in the yard things that are um that were like a big party scene, it's now a handful of friends. So they're really, and none of it hurts the actual story, but they, you know, they're determined to make it safe for everybody with the COVID-19 of it all and have managed to maneuver the story to be similar yet safe for everybody. That makes perfect sense. And in, and in TV also, because you have a limited amount of days and you don't always start on like on a Monday and a Friday because you leapfrog episodes. If a night, like say a night scene is just too much in the sixth schedule, you might go to the writer and go, does this have to be night? Or if it does have to be night, can it be inside instead of outside so we can shoot it during the day? Um, or same thing as it gets closer to winter, not that you ever really want a lot of night work on a TV show because you're, you just, the weeks just continue. So you don't get a break from night work. Um, yeah. But when the sun is going down at, you know, four thirty, then you might go back to the writer and say, we have way too much day work in this script. The sun goes down at four thirty. Can these scenes be night? And in TV, especially they, they will accommodate you if it works for the story. So, so are you ever also convincing the production team and the director to shoot day for night, for example, or, or not really? That kind of goes back to, I'm not necessarily thought of as a creative person. So you really have to approach those kind of questions or 
suggestions. Very tactfully. Carefully. Yeah. Yes, tactfully is a good word. And mainly so it's not you telling them what they need to do. Right. There right. are, there are, I'm sure there are first ADs that do that and just say, this is just not going to work. You need to fix it. <laughs> I'm, I'm more of a, I'm not like that. Yeah. I will suggest things, but I will suggest things. Hey, had you thought about this or, you know, consider this because this may not benefit us. You know, it's all just making sure you're not telling. I mean, in any in any position, for me as a first AD, I never tell anybody how to do their job because I don't do their job. I can't tell someone to do something faster because it's not my job. If someone is setting up a light and we're running out of time, you know, that's our fault for running out of time they need to be careful and set up their light the way they need to set it up. You, all you can say is, Hey, do you think you're going to be ready in a couple minutes? Cause we'd really like to get this shot done. The rest is, you know, does that person have the ability to do something faster because now he knows or she knows that there's less time than they thought. Maybe, you know, that's always my, one of my favorite things is when people panic that the sun is going down I was like, yeah, well, you know, it kind of goes down every day. And, and, and we knew that when we started this day. Yeah. So if, we're running, if we're running out of light now, that's because somewhere, and it could have been something out of our hands, like maybe we were doing a stunt and the, and the wheel broke and we didn't expect that. So we had to fix the car and that delayed us an hour, an hour running short. But at that point, then it does go back to the director to say, what shots do you need, 100% need, and what shots were on your wish list that you can give up? Because now you have less time. Either we need to move at a quicker pace to get everything you want, or there might be a couple of things you can't actually get. And if you, But if you have something and you can cut together a scene and you're hap pretty happy, then, then we're good. Yeah. So, it is a team effort. It's also the, you know, the DP, the director of photography will, will either work with you and say, you know what, I will make this simple. Or if it's a blocking thing, you know, if it's a scene with four people, don't put them in four different places in the room so that you have to do 10 shots to get overs and close-ups and all that. You know, maybe you stack a couple people. So you're only looking in two directions instead of five directions so it's all and, and you know what it's all stuff that I've learned along the way of how to suggest things that might help save time without telling someone how to shoot their shot because I'm not the director even though I have director in my name I'm I'm the assistant director <laughs> yeah which which is different which is very different than what people outside of the industry might think that an AD is an assistant to the director. It's, you know, it's a lot more logistical. Right. There's, there's assistant to the director and then there's director's assistant or yeah. So my job, I mean, I, when I describe it to somebody that's not in the business, I say I'm the manager of the set. So I'm the person that comes up with the schedule. I go to the set. I tell everybody at the beginning of the day, what we are doing today. I tell them 
if it's something that we're moving from set to set, I tell them, this is the plan. This is how long we think we're going to be here and there. I tell them any safety issues that are on the set. Um, and I'm sure that's and then, so intensified lately <laughs> with COVID-19. So I, I haven't done it yet, but yes, next uh, September 8th will be my first uh, day on a COVID-19 protocol set. So I'm sure my safety meeting will be much longer than just don't trip on the cables and make sure you drink water because it's hot out. Um, which are which are sometimes the only thing you really have to say like and i and i love to say be kind to each other because we spent we spend so much time together on a on a set each day you have to watch out for each other and especially now you have to be even more kind to each other because not everybody is used to this new way of living and especially not a new way of living while you're working all day with your face masks and things like that so we have to watch out for each other. But yeah, so as an AD, you tell everybody what's going on in the middle of the, in, at the beginning of the day, you give them all their safety information, and then you begin the day. And the day is calling in actors. You know, I've already, my second AD has taken my schedule and has made something called the call sheet that everybody gets every day before they go home. It says what time to come to work, where to where to go to work, um, what scenes we're going to shoot, what elements we need, everything you could possibly need to know about today on one piece of paper. The actors have partially gotten their makeup done. We bring them to the set. We have a rehearsal. They go away. I let the people that set up for the first shot know that it's time for them to come in and get ready. The actors continue to get ready for their first shot. When everybody's done lighting the set and setting cameras, I invite the cast back in. And then we clear the set and call for quiet and I roll, roll the cameras and the director calls action. And we continue like that throughout the day with me just keeping people informed as the day goes on, as we need new information or moving on or breaking for lunch. That's my job to just keep everybody informed. It's really all about information because soon as you get, I remember the first time that I was first seen on a set, I was wondering if people would listen to me. And sure enough, I said, uh, here you go. And I look around and the boom guy raises his mic. The camera guy puts his eye to the lens. Other people back away. The actors are on their marks. And I was like, wow, this is kind of cool. I say yeah. rolling and, and the cameras roll and the slate goes in and the sound guy says speed. And, and here I'm like, I just said two words, but everybody's such a professional. They know their jobs. I don't need to know their jobs. They just know the cues and it all happens. The director calls action and the actors act. I mean, literally if the act, if the director for, not forgets to say action or, or uses another word or, or the you know they're at a monitor so the actors can't hear them. The actors just stand there and wait. It it's kind of it's kind of it's a really interesting thing to watch. It is even now. I'm always impressed. I know what you mean. Um, so actually, and you've you've worked with some pretty great directors. Like I mean, your IMDb is super impressive. You work with directors like James Cameron, David Fincher, Richard Donner. I mean, some really top directors in the business. 
you have any stories from working with any of these folks or is there any of your no. favorite directors? <laughs> <laughs> You've seen them at their best and at their worst, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, you didn't list my favorite, who was Walter Hill. Oh, I love Walter I Hill. With. The Warriors. I, the Warriors. I worked on three move three kind of three and a half movies with Walter. And he did Last Man uh, Red Standing. Heat. Actually, four four movie, four full movies. Yeah, he did Last Man Standing. That's the one I did just a little bit on. Um, That's a great movie too. I did Red Heat, uh, another Forty Eight Hours, Geronimo. Um, all with Walter and Johnny Handsome with Walter. And he, not only is he an amazing director, but he is one of the most loyal people to his crew and, and some cast. And he believes in keeping the team together. So if you watch, if you were to watch the credits, if you did a Walter Hill marathon and watch the credits from every movie, you'll see that not a whole lot changes between like from warriors to um what was the nick nolte one 48 hours hours. none of that one but the one the one before that i mean he did crossroads anyways his a lot of his uh crew stays that's awesome i love that he has he has done a lot lately but i even talk to him every once in a while i'll give him a call or he'll give me a call just to check in he's that kind of guy and he it's, it's so funny that we're mentioning him. For some reason, I was thinking about him when I was driving the other day because I know that he's he, – well, I, I, I'm really a fan of his work. But I'm also aware that aside from directing films, he's also produced a number of films too. Like he's also a talented oh, producer. Yeah. You will see his, his name on hundreds of writing, writing, producing. Like he's done so much as a – director but then behind the scenes you'll see his name everywhere as a writer or producer he's um and and here's a really funny quick story from the past my dad who i said was a gaffer worked on a show called the monkeys that was his first time gaffing job and a gaffer is the chief lighting technician so he's the one that that lights the sets his first job as a gaffer is the monkeys and there's a production assistant on that set named Walter Hill. So Walter Hill would get my dad like hamburgers. The funny, so when I worked on my first Walter Hill movie, Red Heat, my dad was actually the gaffer on it. In fact, the like first three movies I worked on was with the same team, as I just said, the crew, and my dad was part of that team. And I got to work with my dad on that movie, on the three movies. and. That's how I learned the story about my dad saying, yep, I'm still a gaffer. And now Walter, who used to bring me hamburgers, is the director. So it was it was pretty that, cool. That, that is a funny story. And, Walter, and, oh, no, go ahead, please. Oh, I was just going to say, Walter, when I was, he met me when I was production assistant. And then when I applied to the Directors Guild, I had to get letters from different people to say that I had been doing this kind of work and should be let into the director's guild. He signed one of those letters. And when I talked to him after I got in, he, he said, so gee, I'm really happy that you got into the director's guild, but just know that they've closed a lot of loopholes up since you did, but I'm happy to be 
one of those people that signed a letter for you. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. And you have to realize I'm from the Bronx and how often the movie, the warriors gets quoted from literally everyone (laughs) that I ever grew up with. (laughs) Like I'm sure it's happened even in the last couple of months, like warriors, come out and play. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty cool. I would, I would love, I would love to work for him. I've not been able to. Cause you're doing a lot of, yeah, you're doing a lot of television work that keeps you busy now. Right. Well, I always tell him when I talk to him, he's like, he, he thinks I work all the time, which I've been lucky to work a lot. But every time I talk to him, he's like, I'm like, when are we going to do a movie together? He goes, I'm the one not working. You're the one working all the time. So gee, I'm like, no, but I would definitely, if you got your movie, I'm like, how can I help you get a movie? Cause I want to be your AD. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. So, um, and I also saw that you worked on a, on a movie that I feel like nobody talks about, but I saw it in the movie theater when I was a kid, uh, blown away with Jeff Bridges and Tommy Lee Jones. And I just remember being a kid and seeing that in the movies and really loving that movie. Seeing us blow up Boston. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So that was, it was a really fun movie. Um, so I went to Boston at that time. I was a second, second AD. I ran base camp, which means I was where all the actors get ready. And I was the one to wrangle the actors and making sure everybody's getting ready at the right time. And I would send them off to the set. And then if nobody was, if everybody was on the set, then I would get to go to the set. So I did get to witness many of the explosions and things that we did to that town. Um, which was a lot of fun. Jeff Bridges was amazing. Tommy Lee Jones was scary. Um, (laughs) Jeff Bridges' dad was such a lovely man. I remember going into his trailer one time because it was my job to go like get them when we it was time to go and he was so quiet laying on his bed I was really worried I was like oh no because he was an older man and it was you see in the movie there was a scene where we strapped him to um what do you call those um the uh playground those metal discs are Oh, I know what you're talking about. I don't know what what they're called because where I grew up, they didn't really have them, but I've seen them. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So it's it's like a carousel looking thing. Yeah. It's a piece of playground equipment. Yeah. Because they wanted the scene done in like evening. We had to shoot it over like three or four days. And it was this old man, you know, Lloyd Bridges, who we strapped with all these bombs, obviously fake bombs around his chest. And it was like gloomy and drippy weather in Boston. And he's strapped to this piece of playground equipment that's slowly spinning around. And and then one of those days was the day that I had to go in and like wake him up after lunch. And he like wasn't moving. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I killed Lloyd Bridges. Um, so I'm like shaking his toe cause he was in one of those trailers that like the bed, like you turned to the, the left and his feet were like sticking out of me. Cause it was like a trailer that the bed was anyway. So his feet were pointed at me. So I like was grabbing his toe and like wiggling his toe and he wasn't waking up. And I'm like, Lloyd, Lloyd. Finally it was like, Oh yeah. Hi Sochi. Okay. Hi. 
I was like, oh my God. <laughs> that's that's yeah. an intense moment. <laughs> Jeff Bridges was amazing. He does this nice as be. He had this really cool camera that I actually have one. I just have never learned how to actually use it. It's, I can't, um, I don't remember the name, but it was a lens that does a 180. Like if you look up Jeff Bridges photography, anybody out there that's listening, you will see these 180 photos. So he would have people and he would take pictures of the crew. And at the end of Almost like movie, a super panoramic sort of photo. Yes, that's exactly, yeah, it's a panoramic type of film camera. And he would take pictures of the crew all through the movie. He'd actually, you'd see him like posing a grip or, whatever he only got he only caught me once because i'm blown away i was so busy and i don't think that picture made it into the book but um he gave a book of the photos to every crew member as a gift with a personalized signature to me or to you whoever it was with a thank you for doing the movie oh, so, that's really thoughtful yeah yeah but his pictures are pretty cool you'll if you look it up you'll see him Um, so he was great. The, um, the rest of the rest of the group, like I said, was group great. Tommy Lee Jones is just a very serious, very serious actor. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't go for any messing around. Gotcha. If you didn't have, if you didn't have something to say, or if you hesitated trying to tell him something, he would say, go away. When you're ready to tell me what you want, come back. Wow. So I learned, I learned, I learned, yeah. okay, walk into his trailer, Tommy, ready for you. And then I'd skedaddle. Uh, no small talk with around. Tommy Lee Jones. No small talk, no. Gotcha. Um, but the movie, but the movie itself, Boston was great. We did the big explosion at the end when they blew up the ship. They had canvassed the neighborhood. They had asked the special effects department, how far of a range do we need to warn people Do they need to board up their windows or just, you know, what is it that they need to be safe? They gave all the parameters that were told to them to all the storekeepers and people in apartments near the, near the, I think it's the South Bay. Where we were going to blow up the ship and it was come the time we had, I don't know, 20, 30 cameras all around to blow this thing up. There were two stuntmen that were going to run away and jump into the bay, and then the, the boat is going to blow up behind them. That all looked great. I think special effects added a few more gallons of gas and explosives because they were worried it wouldn't blow up. And we blew out so many store windows in the area, even, even windows that were boarded up to protect themselves. The board blew out, and then the window blew out. And wow. in the new, my sister lives there and her mother-in-law would send me articles from the Boston Globe or wherever that said, you know, blown away, blew up South Bay. And it went on for years. The stories were like, even now, I bet if you ask someone that was around at that time, oh, were you around when blown away was shooting here? Yeah, they blew out all the windows. It was the biggest explosion yeah. in town. That was like the last era of like true practical effects before like, you know, now I feel like it would just be like a VFX thing that people would do. You know? Yeah, exactly. 
but I I think that was, was an underrated really movie. I feel like I I loved seeing that movie in the movie theater. You know, there's certain movies that I remember seeing in the cinema. You know, as a kid growing up, Terminator Two was certainly one of them. Um, that was certainly a cinematic experience, and you worked on that as well, which which we're gonna get to in a, in a few minutes. But but Blown Away is I feel like one that people don't talk about so much. Maybe they should, and that's right. part of the part of this podcast too. Is I want to put I want to bring up movies that you know should be on people's radar again or for the first time if they're it not was, familiar with them. Yeah, I was on a lot of those kind of movies, like Walter Hill movies. There are some that are like you, like you know Warriors. I don't know if everybody knows Warriors. Um, Geronimo. Geronimo happened to come out at the same time as um, a couple other westerns. There's you know how sometimes there's a run on a certain type of movie. And there were a couple other Westerns that came out that year or within the year or two. Geronimo kind of got no no recognition. And it was a time- You know, I'm embarrassed to say, my, I've never seen it. I have, to, I have to check it out. Well, you have to tell me what you think about it. But I think, you know, nowadays, it, kind of doesn't matter how long your movie is if it's good they'll put a two-hour movie out they'll put an hour and a half movie out two and a half hours it just kind of depends on the movie back back then action movies were kind of an hour and a half and i i don't know if it's the theater schedule like i can get this many screenings in at a certain time but geronimo like there was a it would is not in the movie was this what i thought was this beautiful scene with Robert Duvall standing at the grave of one of the um, one of the Indians that had died and he's singing a song at the grave site. It didn't make the movie. And I don't know if it's out there somewhere, but it was a really, really cool scene. But we had yeah, Robert Duvall, Gene Hackman, Jason Patrick, West Duty, West Duty, yeah. So for all those people, a uh, Matt Damon, like literally Matt Damon was 20 something years old, like 20, 21, brand new actor. Um, a pre goodwill, pre goodwill hunting Matt Damon. Yeah. He was this cute young actor that came in and uh, played the, the young Lieutenant or something to Jason Patrick's character who became friends with Geronimo. I mean, I, I think it, Maybe because I'm not a as big of a fan. I worked on a lot of action movies, but that's not my favorite type of movie to watch. This one was a nice story about Geronimo and the people that he met and things like that and what happened to him. So, anyways, anyways, yeah. watch it out there. Come on, come yeah, on, I'm guys. Watch it. Yeah, I'm gonna look out for that one. Um, so I wanna. Our next question comes from our friend Lena Lansky, who works as a first AD on a lot of indie films here in New York. And Lena's question is, how does an AD get better at their job? I've been uh, firsting for roughly three years and don't have a mentor of sorts. And although I'm told I'm a good AD, I want to get better. My assumption in answering this question is to get tougher scripts that challenge me logistically and expand my experience. But if I'm not getting this type of content, what can I do in the meantime? So I know that's, Probably not the easiest question to answer, but, but you know, maybe you could have some advice since you're an expert in the field. Because I'm an expert. I'm an expert. <laughs> you're a world-class expert. Come on. Look at you. <laughs> on, on so some amazing here's, here's the thing. I mean, I've said some of it just 
in the practice of being a first AD, being someone who listens well. Uh, the, the Really, the more you schedule a show, the more you figure out the nuances and how you can how you can work things out. It comes easier to you as you, there's not just black and white. There's like a gray and a, you know, a partial white, you know, it's not, it's not, I, I feel like it's experience doing the thing, doing the same job over and over again. I always say to someone who thinks, Oh, I have to work on a huge movie. I have to, you know, do this kind of movie. It's like, well, yes, it's great to be able to work on all those different kinds of movies. But in the end, you are still the first AD. You are the manager and you are the one that is taking all the elements. I worked on, you know, the X-Files and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Those were visual effects type of shows, both old and new type of visual effects and and Terminator 2 I wasn't the first but I saw how they put things together it's it's a matter of just listening to all the people that are in their departments that are experts in their field and taking in their information and making sure you then put it back out to the people that need to know and the more you do it the more you figure out that that's your main job. You are the hub of all the information is coming to you. And then you have to put it in a form where then you can pass it back out. And as long as you keep everybody informed, any kind of movie you can do. Sure, it's not as comfortable your first time on a big stunt because you think I need to know everything about this stunt or I'm not a good AD. That's not true. There's a stunt coordinator. There's an effects foreman. There's, um, you know, there's 10 different departments that are involved in this one stunt. You just need to know that you have to give people information, not how to do their job, but that it's time to do their job. Or someone says, I need two hours to rig the car. And the stunt guy says, I need an hour to rehearse the car you just need to put all those things in place so that everybody is ready at the time that you're shooting. And in the end, as long as you know it's safe and you've had your safety meeting because the special effects guy has told everybody, this is what's gonna happen. This is how far away you need to stand. The stunt guy says, don't stand in that corner because the car could go that way. As long as you're listening to all of those people, suddenly, you are now an expert on being an assistant director on a stunt on a stunt unit. Same thing with visual effects. I don't know everything there is to do about visual effects, but I worked on a show that did them all the time. And you get to know after your first time, you go, oh, the visual effects guy is going to tell me what elements he needs. He's actually going to tell the rigging grips how big of a green screen he needs. Do I need to know that? I could make a note of it in my schedule so that, who knows? Everybody, maybe maybe the craft service guy wants to know. I don't know. But you know, it's some of that stuff. Because everybody else has taken their own notes. And everybody else are experts in what they're doing and what they were hired to do. So as long as you're keeping the information out there, there's not, no kind of show that an AD can't do. Yeah. And you're sort of the liaison between these different uh, 
departments a lot of the times. That's correct. And, you know, people come to us and say, what about this? I don't know all the answers. And I certainly never make it up assuming that I can just guess because that's not my job. My job is, you know what? I don't know the answer to this. Let me call that person that is and I'll find out. You know, it's it's really about information because we are not we're not a craft. We're not a creative. We're the management. We're not the boss of any of the crew. We are just the person that organizes them. And if your attitude is that, that you're not the boss of people, because, you know, people go, oh, I'm a manager. That means I can tell you what to do. It's not an efficient or a productive way to think about it because that's, you know, we're all, we're all hired to do our specific job. Um, yeah. and not to, not to tell people what to do more to tell them what we're going to do and right. then they can make a judgment. And if, you know, certainly every once in a while, there's a difficult person that, especially, you know, for me, I'm, I'm short, I'm female, you know, there's, I have had a handful of people throughout my career, not want to listen to me or call me little lady or whatever, you know, what? that's pretty obnoxious. Those people, those people are few and far between these days because I do tell people what they're doing and they do appreciate that I give them information. And if I don't give them information, they'll come and ask and I'll say, Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I meant to tell you this was the last shot in this scene and we're going to move after this. So yes, pack up your stuff. And then, you know, they're like, okay, great. Thanks for telling me. So in answer to her question, you just learn Every job you do, you pick up some things that you won't do the next time or things that are that you realize work better. I'm, you know, I don't I don't think it's because I grew up in the business that I can talk to anybody, but my my thought is the way I've always been is every day when I go to the set, whoever it is, I say hello to them. Could be the laborer, could be you know, the executive, the, you know, whoever it is, we're all working. We're all on the job. I'm, my job is one thing and your job is the other. And I'm going to be friendly and happy. And that's the way it's going to be. It doesn't always sit well with some people that have hired me because they don't expect ADs to be happy. <laughs> that's, funny. Uh, that's, that's interesting. Sort of a, silly silly thing because we are making movies we're not it's not brain surgery or right you know and it's a collaborative medium at the end of the day it's it's collaborative and we should all be in it together and even more so now now i don't i don't know that it's going to be as happy and fun in the beginning when i start shooting next week because it's all so new to everybody that you know all the protocols and you're not really supposed to hang out with each other which is such a big thing in this business to go up and you get a handshake or a pat on the back every morning. Now it's going to be like, don't touch me. Put on your mask. Go to work. Yeah. Stay, yeah. I think Does that answer question. the question? I th- absolutely. 100%. And okay. just um, hearing your perspective on your experiences is, is pretty awesome. Can I ask, add one other thing? Absolutely. 
no matter what your position as an AD, if someone comes to me like a PA or a or anybody else on the crew that knows information that I don't, I want to know it. I don't care where the information came from. I don't hold on to, you know, I'm the first AD. I'll tell you what to do. Don't you tell me what to do. But there's a truck that's about to run us over, you know. <laughs> oh, all right. You know, just listen. Like you said, it's a collaboration. And it's a collaboration from the bottom to the top of people. So as long as we're all working together and listening to each other, it turns out a much better product because who knows who has a better idea. doesn't always have to be you. Well put. So I'd like to move into the next portion of the podcast where we discuss a couple of your favorite movie scenes. And it happens to be a couple of movie scenes that you've actually worked on which I think is pretty amazing. Um, and so I asked you this ahead of time, and I I know that uh, Lethal Weapon 3 was one of them. Is it Lethal Weapon 3 or 4? Um, 4? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know 4 was listed on your IMDb. Honestly, honestly I always forget. Yeah, <laughs> it's so dumb that I can't remember. No, I think that's understandable. Yeah, you, you've you've with your credits, you've worked on so many. Projects, I think, I think so. a number. I don't know why. Yeah, it's I did, a number. So, you know. so I didn't work on the whole movie. Like I was on the second unit, so I didn't actually work with the direct, the main director. I got to meet him. I didn't get to work with him, but they had. Was Richard Donner working? Uh, direct? Did he yeah. direct that one? So he directed all. Of them. Yeah. So, but the movie was so big that when it came to second unit and a second unit is when there's so much action in a script that in order to get it done, they break it out into what is basically an action unit. So they will hire a different director, which is usually an action director. It might be a stunt coordinator that is also a director and they'll give him a particular set of scenes or shots to accomplish while they're while the first unit, which is where the main actors are, while the first unit is just shooting dialogue scenes or simpler, simpler action stuff. So Lethal Weapon was so big that they had two second units. They had a night second unit and a day second unit. And I was on the day second unit. And uh, I think the story, did I tell you about the story about the car coming out of the building? You mentioned yeah. it over over the email, but I definitely want to hear it. Yeah, so one of our assignments to shoot was when this car was driving through an office and it comes out of the office building, which is many floors up, and flies out of, out of the uh, window. So, and that's in real time. It's not visual effects, like he was saying, present day, that might not have happened. Um, but so in order to set this up, we found this office building in Long Beach, California, went down there. They somehow craned the car up into this office building, put the windows in. And as you know, Lethal Weapon does have some jokes in it. It's not just action. So they put a, they put a window washer over the window. And the goal, the, they had two stuntmen that they were gonna put 
as window washers and the car was going to fly out the window and fly past these guys. And these guys would be, you know, surprised. So in order to get a car safely out a window and land, I don't know how good the car was at the end, but they put hundreds, stunt people use cardboard boxes, just simple cardboard boxes that they build and they make piles and piles of them so that when something, whether it's them, a person, or a vehicle comes out of the window or whatever they're doing from a high fall, they have a softer landing on the cardboard boxes. So that's, they've created this enormous pile of cardboard boxes. There's stunt people everywhere. They get the car ready. The guys are up on the window washing thing, you know, ready, set, roll camera. I was not the first AD, I was one of the seconds. Um, action the car comes racing out of the windows the windows break it lands everything's great except one of the window washers actually got clipped by the car wow and was like almost dangling on the window washing thing and it was not funny they're watching it back they watched playback and realized it looked like they killed the the window washer so they thought well that's not funny and so we had to reset it which for that that was a huge setup in itself and they kind of assumed they would only do it one time but we had to go do something else I don't even know if we went something else or we just had to take a couple days off while they put the you know put the car back up put the window back up put the cardboard boxes put the cardboard boxes build them back up and um, do it again. And the second time, it did work. The guy did not get hit, and it actually was funny. If you watch the yeah. movie, I hope it was funny. And uh, it just it just shows what a huge, huge setup for one. You know, in the movie, I think it's in the movie. Yeah, it's in the movie. It's just like you know, three seconds or five seconds, and it's multiple, multiple days of many, many people getting set up, people getting hurt then recovering and getting back out there and doing it. It's, uh, it was a pretty crazy shot. That is pretty crazy. And I definitely yeah. would have assumed that they used something more intricate and complicated than cardboard boxes, perhaps because my brain always overcomplicates things, but I definitely assumed that there would be like some yeah. super complicated landing sort of mechanism, but just to hear that it's cardboard boxes nope. is sort of funny. Well, because once the car comes out, they they you know they do have to do their calculations and figure out how far it's going to go. But then when it once it actually lands, it's just dead in the water because it's landing in the boxes and the guy's taking his foot off the gas. And there were two stuntmen in there, one playing you know, I think it was the two main characters. Um, yeah, and it just lands and stops. So yeah. there is if you look up if it's lethal weapon for um car out the window there is a video on youtube i think that you can see it i'm going to look that up for sure that one just that one little clip so that was i guess i've done a couple shows with things coming like terminator 2 there was a scene where the motorcycles coming out of the coming out of the windows yeah and it's funny because i was watching that again more recently um and i definitely noticed 
the stuntman like you know it cuts to the stuntman i'm like that's definitely not arnold in that shot when like the motorcycle goes off the ledge in the highway i'm like <laughs> it cuts mm -hmm. to a wider shot but it's definitely not arnold <laughs> yeah no it was a stunt double yeah, yeah. Well, i mean back then i mean terminator 2 at the time was the first movie that was over 100 million dollars to make yeah now it's kind of like, oh, let's just drop in the bucket. But back then, that was a huge budget and the it's only one deal. at that time. And But visual effects, although amazing in the movie, once you see the final final procedure, now it's like, oh, just put up a green screen and, and visual effects goes, oh, yeah, that's fine. You don't have to do anything. You, uh, we'll fix it later. Back then, it was, you know, uh, Robert Patrick's character, who was the melty man who, the T you know, in split into pieces that was they made a model of a, like when he got cut in the elevator i think she stuck the she stuck a knife or something is that what it was um they made a model of robert patrick that was like split in the middle and made silver on the inside so that they could have like a stand-in piece of what he looked like in the end and then they would take it back to you know their computers and fix it there was you know when he melted on the ground of the of the um, you know, the final sequence that big factory he melted into a bunch of pieces. It was like literally like a bunch of balls of aluminum foil all over the floor that we shot, and then they take it back to the you know the computers after we shot it, and they turn it into actually liquidy silver. So that That's show cool. that was. It took about seven months to film that, and um, I was just gonna say, I, and I and I know that you said one of the fun moments, what the scene that you wanted to talk about from Terminator Two was, um, I guess, under the bridge, um, and that was, I guess, the first time oh. in the movie when when um, yeah when the Terminator Arnold Schwarzenegger's character first appears. Yeah, it was just. Um, as I said, as you said, you know, everybody collaborating, everybody's working together. And when it comes down to it, you do whatever it takes to get it done. Not, uh, not anything unsafe, but you know, right. you help, e you help each other Then you know, no, you can't help each other break union rules or any of that. But there was just this one time it's, you know, if you've watched Terminator 2, the way they both appear is naked under a bridge at night. And so and the wind is blowing and newspapers are blowing and all that stuff. So the special effects guys have these huge fans called Ritter fans and they're, they're um, they've got stacks of newspaper next to them and they just needed an extra hand because here's Arnold's going to be coming out of, you know, whatever thin air and appearing naked under this nighttime bridge. So they're like wetting down the ground, the fans start going and they call me over and go, we need some help. They hand me the big, you know, cans to tune out the noise of the fan. And here I am with glasses, you know, like constructor, you know, welding glasses and cans on my ears. And they're like, all right, just throw the, just take this stack of paper. We're going to turn on the fan and you're just going to throw the paper out into the air. And it was just, it was cold. It was windy. It was loud, but it was one of the most fun times because you're just participating and creating something that later 
you know, you're going to watch on the screen and go, man, this looks fantastic. Well, it's, yeah. you know, the weather is crazy there and he's appearing in the wind. Little did you know that I was standing on the side, like that's pretty crazy cool. with my paper and everything. <laughs> yeah. There were a that's lot of, there's amazing. a lot of stuff like that, that even now it's still, as you as a movie maker, probably the same way. It's just really fun to see things happen it's fun. behind the scenes. Yeah, no, it's amazing to hear that story. And, and, and the opening sequence certainly holds up very well. A lot of things in that movie hold up so well. Um, it's such a great film. But, you know, I do always think about the fact that there are certain movies that I just feel like you feel like the full impact of those films, watching it on the big screen. Like if I were to just watch that movie for the first time uh, on the TV, like just somebody discovering it for the first time, I would like it. I would think, oh, like this is really cool but I just remember how much of a cinematic experience it was watching that when I was like, you know, 10 years old or whenever it came out. Yeah, it does, does make a difference. I mean, even when the movie finished, usually they, you know, when they, when they put it all together, sometimes they will have a, a big screening for the crew cast and crew to go see at a movie theater. So I got to go see it. And like I said, it was my first, movie after I got into the director's guild and for some reason the producer gave me a really nice credit so first off it's this fantastic movie and you're like oh this is what we this is you know 14 16 hours a day for seven months this was worth it you know yeah like some shows you work on and you're like that's what I spent all my time on um this was like okay this is our reward for working so hard everybody working so hard sure and then at, at the very end of the movie as a in the credits normally as a second second ad you're kind of mixed in the bottom with some of the other people um i got this fantastic credit like right near the top at the end of the movie and i awesome. just i and being my first one as a second as in the director's guild it was just like, wow, this is, this is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah. And James Cameron. But I mean, what a James Cameron. James Cameron was, as you can imagine, very intense. Yeah. I um, did spend a lot of time at base camp getting actors ready, you know, with all the Arnold's makeup and all that stuff. So I didn't spend as much time on the set. So I didn't. <laughs> I, Jim Cameron definitely knew who everybody was. He like you just, you just kind of wanted to stay out of his way if you didn't have anything. Kind of like Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, I know you, he was a very meticulous wanted, guy. Yes, which is could be why our days were so long. But then, <laughs> but then we did stuff like one particular place that we shot a lot of stuff was out, um, out of town here, and we would every once in a while on Friday night we might all meet at a local bar there and have a drink no i didn't have a drink i didn't i don't drink but everybody else would drink and jim cameron would come every once in a while and it was like a totally off the set person that now was very funny and telling stories of other movies that he had been on like he said i just remember this one and he said abyss the abyss that he oh, did there was a lot there was a lot of underwater work 
And when yeah. they went underwater, he was one of the people that went underwater and he was the only one with a, with a speaker in his mask because he was giving direction. And everybody else that was underwater had to listen to him breathe the whole time. And he just, it was something funny. It was like, every once in a while I would hold my breath to see if people were actually listening. If they actually noticed that I, you know, that I stopped breathing. Uh, he told, he just told, he would tell these funny stories, but then yeah. he'd go back to the set and he would be very intense and, and, um, and he could do everything. It wasn't, like I said, as an AD, I never assume I know how to do somebody's job because I probably can't. I might suggest something, but I don't tell you how to do your job. Jim would tell people, you know, like paint that this way. And if the guy didn't understand, he would take the paintbrush out of his hand and he really did know how to do exactly what he was asking to be done and he would just do it himself. Yeah. You know, he was, yeah. if he needed something, you know, he'd, he'd lay on the ground to line up a shot. He'd, you know, he, there was no fear of, of doing anything. So yeah, it's pretty... pushed, he pushed people to their limits because somehow he already knew like effects or stunts he already knew they could be done so if someone said eh, i don't know jim he goes no well let's let's work it out let's try and sure enough those people would pull it off because they knew that he knew it was possible they just had to go figure out how to do it so it, like all the effects and stuff that's why they're so amazing because he knew that it could happen so he wasn't just somebody saying I want this. They were like, no, really, really, you can't do that. Well, I don't care. He actually. Yeah. He, he knew precisely how it could be achieved. Yeah. It's not like he didn't do his homework and he figured it out before asking. Nice. Yeah. So first of all, I'm really excited to watch your documentary when it does come out. I know, you know, there's still a little bit more work to be done, as you mentioned earlier. But when Red Dog and Bates comes out, I and you know implore everybody to watch it. It's a listener of the, this podcast. Is there anything else that you would like to mention or any noteworthy things? What what show are you working on now? I'm on a TV show called Animal Kingdom. That's on TNT. It's on its fifth season. We stopped in the middle of the fifth season because of the shutdown. And we're just now getting started again. I definitely heard of the show, so I'll definitely check it out. Yeah, it's good. It's about a family in Oceanside that um, they're just not very nice. They pull a lot of heists. Um, they're kind of a surfer. Oceanside is down uh, near San Diego. So they're kind of surfers that do bad things, but they're family, so they stick together. But... And you watch the first episode and say, these guys are too awful. Why would I ever watch the next episode? And then you realize I need to watch the next episode because I want to know what happened. The next thing you know, you've watched them all. But um, I started working on it last season. So I started in the fourth season. Now we're doing the fifth season. Um, like I said, we have a half season left to go because we got shut down because of COVID-19. Yeah. yeah, it's fun. I, yeah, the only thing... To conclude is, even after all these years, I still love what I do. Obviously, I'm trying to do the documentary to maybe see if I can do something other than being a first AD, but it's definitely not 
to get out of the movie business because I loved it when I grew up in it and I love it now. And you, if you can work with good people, then it's, you know, it's easy to continue. Absolutely. Never think you you have to suffer. Yeah. That's it. Well said. Well, Sochi, we appreciate you so much. I personally appreciate uh, you being so gracious with your time and really enjoyed our talk. And uh, for having me, I really appreciate you even considering having me. It was, I was uh, lucky to have met you in, in comic book writing class. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And um, I don't know if it's too early for you to say about what's in the work for the comic book situation. Maybe, I don't know if that's something you want to leave as a surprise for when it's, for when it's ready, but. Yeah. Well, we took this really fun class and wrote, we each wrote comic books. Um, So I decided one fun way to show Red Dog and Bates would be in comic form. So I'm excited to see what my artist comes up with. And um, that might just be when you go see the movie, you might get the comic book as well. Well, from what you showed me so far, it looks pretty outstanding. So That was pretty cool, right? Very. Thank you for listening to the Film Scene Podcast with your host, Zeph Kota. 